Hey, podcast listeners, I've got a special offer to share with you. You can get access to all existing and future podcast CEUs for $79 subscription for a year. And because you're amazing, you can use my code SUP20 and get $20 off. A year's access to all podcast CEUs for $59. Check out the details at speechtherapypd.com and use my code SUP20. The Speech Uncensored podcast brings medical SLP ear candy to your podcast queue weekly. This week, I'm pleased to welcome the engaging Aaron Ziegler to the show to discuss the ins and outs of specializing in voice therapy. Aaron wants to make working with voice accessible to every SLP with an interest in it. And I think he makes a strong case for it. So without further ado, I am Leanne Porter, your host, and let's get into it. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Lee. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited for our topic, and I can't wait to share um, your expertise with our listening audience. And so before we dive into our topic, though, I want them to um, learn a little bit, if they're not already familiar with you, who you are and what you do and the impact that you've had on our profession. That sounds great. Um, I am a uh, speech-language pathologist uh, who uh, found his way to speech pathology uh, as a former actor and singer. So uh, from a very young age, uh, I was performing in musicals, uh, Oliver, uh, Hello, Dolly, Little Shop of Horrors, you know, all of those fun, uh, exciting musicals that we grow up with. And um, then went to school for uh, theater at the University of Michigan, where I had a really unique opportunity to also work with George Shirley, who was a professional opera singer, a tenor at the Metropolitan Opera, who had a long career and is still singing today, which has a great influence on um, some of my clinical work and research into aging voice. But um, yeah, but so studied with him and had a really great foundation in uh, the physiologic basis of voicing for singing. And he had a uh, a keen interest in uh, vocal health and wellness and maintaining a uh, healthy singing voice. And so he was also very much a part of the Voice Foundation, which for our listeners is a large organization for uh, professionals who work with voice from MDs to SLPs to voice teachers to acting coaches. And so uh, he had a great influence on my uh, love and curiosity for understanding the voice and how it worked. Uh, I also was studied, uh, have a BA in Latin American studies and, and, and bilingual in Spanish. And uh, that was really great. And have I've used much of what I learned from that degree, even in my speech language pathology practice in understanding different uh, people from different cultures and how that impacts um, changing behaviors and the success we have with that. Um, 
But what really drove me to go into speech pathology and voice therapy was that uh, I was in Hong Kong and working with uh, uh, kids and teaching them to sing from ages four to 16. And there was this one boy in the class who was about 10 years old and had a really rough, low pitch voice and wasn't progressing in the singing class like the other students were. And I was curious and also frustrated why this person wasn't progressing. And I did talk with his mother and found out that his voice was always like that, but, uh, and, and recommended that he go see an ENT to find out why he was having this hoarseness from, from such a young age. And that was the motivation for me to go back to school because I wanted to be able to help this child be able to use their voice. The, the voice is such an important part of our existence. Um, I mean, not just as an adult, but even as an infant, you, a, a baby's cry communicates so much uh, from needing nourishment to dealing with discomfort, to being playful and wanting social interaction. Even at a young age, we are using our voice in such a myriad of ways. And um, it just felt very frustrating that here was a child who was very social um, and it didn't appear that the voice limited the person uh, socially, uh, except one could argue that they he wasn't getting as much enjoyment from the singing classes and maybe was a little frustrated that he wasn't progressing. And so then what impact would that have on his future endeavors and desires to pursue anything with his voice? And how would people treat him? And would he be given the same um, opportunities if his voice were hoarse and he needed, and he was deciding to pursue a career that required the voice. So all of these thoughts and, 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 and that situation really drove me to, to want to go back to school for my graduate uh, degree in speech pathology. And so I applied when I was in Hong Kong and went to Northwestern University and before I went to Northwestern, the, the summer before, I decided to study uh, at the Summer Vocology Institute with Dr. Ingo Tietza. And um, of course, that's a giant in the field. And uh, for good reason, he has really helped um, us understand the science, uh, the, the principles behind voice production and not just for speaking, but for a myriad of um, uses, singing and acting and uh, different types of voices uh, that um, people use, twang and, and, and uh, all the different ways that we can use our voice to express who we are. Uh, then, of course, I went to Northwestern finished my graduate degree and still had questions. And so went to the University of Pittsburgh, uh, where I also was with uh, Leah Hallou, who was on your show, and also Amanda Gillespie, the uh, one of the co-developers of Conversation Training Therapy, which hopefully we can talk a little bit about when we talk about um, voice therapy programming and how important it is to make um, what we do very functional and efficient and efficient. Uh, yeah, and and so uh, studied with Dr. Bertolini Abbott, Kitty Kitty Bertolini, and 
and then from there started to uh, work in academic medical centers, did my clinical fellowship at the Emory Boys Center with Dr. Edie Hapner and Dr. Mike John, the laryngologist, and had the opportunity to work at the University of Pittsburgh Boys Center with Jack- Jackie Gardner-Schmidt, Dr. Ga- Jackie Gardner-Schmidt and Dr. Clark Rosen and Dr. Libby Smith and Dr. Vivi Young and wonderful speech pathologists there, uh, including Leigh and Amanda and uh so many, uh, Tracy Thomas, Rita Herson, wonderful team. And, um, and then moved out to Portland and worked, uh, here in Portland at an academic medical center. And now uh, decided to open an independent practice to really, um, focus on clinic, uh, client centered, approaches to to what we do. Uh, but I think a lot of us do that. Uh, evidence-based, but I think a lot of us do that. And But what I really felt frustrated by in academic medical centers was making it value-driven. You know, our healthcare system right now is, uh, in, is, is in some ways uh, better than it was, as, uh, you know, um, more people are being covered and uh, pre-existing conditions, you can't be denied for coverage. And these are all wonderful um, advances in healthcare, but uh, it still remains very difficult for some people to access and afford um, healthcare. And so we wanted to make sure that people could access our services uh, because we think we can help and we can help efficiently as well and bring down the costs of, of what we do, overall costs. So uh, that's where I'm at. That's my background uh, in terms of training. And, uh, you know, my research and clinical interests are really in models of voice therapy and, and how we get our patients to to use their voice for their lives. I mean, this is really what, what it's about. Um, you know, there's some research out there to show that socialization is so critical for um, aging successfully. And voice is a critical part of socializing. It makes makes communicating efficient. It's the carrier of speech. And, um, you know, when people don't socialize, they don't use their bodies. They don't use their minds, right? They, they isolate. They stay at home. They become sedentary. Uh, they're not engaging, which is a mental process. They're not walking places. To, to, to meet people, which is a physical process. This has, I believe, a tremendous impact on, on our respiratory system and our whole body uh, ability to produce voice. Voice isn't just the larynx. We tend to be very laryngocentric. We focused on the larynx. And that's because we use uh, endoscopy with stroboscopy to see what's going on. Well, that's, that's what that, that is because laryngologists, that's their focus. But we're speech pathologists. We think about the full mechanism. We think about the respiratory system, the larynx, the vocal tract, the articulators, how all of that impacts voice production and all of it does impact voice production. And then we think about things like cognitive ability and and social support and all of these different aspects that are so critical to success in behavioral approaches to um, communication disorders. And so, you know, with my other, um, with Kitty's lab, I focused more on voice therapy for phonotrauma. So um, hyperfunctional voice problems. But during my clinical fellowship, I 
with Dr. Edie Hapner was focusing on um, age-related voice changes or presbyphonia. And um, so both are very important to me. And hence the article that um, I wrote on preventing uh, vocal injury in a touring singer, uh, that really, a lot of that comes from working with Kitty on prevention studies uh, and her treatment studies, but also some of my own uh, scholastic work on um, injury prevention and injury epidemiology. But on the other end, you have the presbyphonia um, issue, which is a hypofunctional problem. And I think we need to uh, distinct, make that distinction very clear because different approaches, I think, are um, helpful for different etiologies of the problem. Just like we wouldn't use one pill to solve all problems, we need to be very um, wise and selective about how we um, approach each of these problems, which are on a continuum um, from hyperfunctional to hypofunctional. So I think I've, I've so far um, made contributions towards models of voice therapy and, and how we help our patients really succeed in voice therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for doing that. <laughs> I definitely benefit from the work that you do um, in my own very humble practice. Um, as an outpatient therapist, you know, I see I cover everything. And so I'll get um, voice referrals. And so I've had to do a lot of learning on the ground and listening to your history about all the amazing, incredible experiences that you've had, like, that's really awesome. And so I really like that you wanted to come on today and um, talk to the people who, who won't be able to have that kind of specific training with such incredible people in our field. Um, but maybe somebody more like myself who works as a generalist, who, who wouldn't necessarily be able to specialize only in voice, but who will treat it and who wants to treat it effectively and efficiently. So I'm really excited about our topic. And let's let's also make sure our listeners understand that actually you do have access to all of these wonderful people. They love to help. So let's not create a, 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 a wall or a mental wall or barrier. Absolutely reach out to your colleagues. We are so excited and passionate about what we do. And to be honest, I want people to be successful in administering voice therapy so that their patients are um, benefiting, so that they're benefiting professionally in their careers and enjoying what they're doing. There's not burnout. There's not uh, lack of confidence. We talk about self-efficacy in our patients, but what about our self-efficacy in what we're doing? And if you're successful, that's going to make you more confident in doing voice therapy. So absolutely, we are so accessible. We want to help. We want to enrich um, our clin other clinicians' lives, and um, it benefits the whole field. It really does. And thank you so much for pointing that out because I come across that um, and recognizing that barrier in myself as well. That it's like, ooh, they're too prestigious. Like they don't want to talk to me. I'm nobody. And you're absolutely right. That is not the case. Like we are in a helping profession because we are helpful people, and we want to lift up and support our patients, and especially our colleagues to provide the best services that we can. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Thank you. Absolutely. I think that's really important to me. Um, good mentors, um, 
they want people to be better than than who than who they are. They want them to be better at voice therapy. They want them to publish um, more interesting articles. They want them to have um, even more success connecting with their patients. Um, a good mentor um, just gives you their perspective based on their, you know, experience and and um, and patient caseloads, and and it's just one perspective, and and hopefully. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful dynamic when when you get to just brainstorm and because nobody has all the answers. This is a complicated system. People are tricky. Yes, yeah. you can. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you can. I think you know. I think what makes the difference between sort of a new clinician and somebody who has more experience is you know most of us can push some buttons and get a better voice going. The, the the talent is getting that person to do that in their real life when they're not with you. Mm-hmm. That's the hard stuff. Yes. Yeah. That's the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Most of us can find a, a facilitating technique to get some better voice, some other voicing behaviors that are more efficient. How that person transfers that and carries that over to their everyday life. That's the hard stuff. And that's the meat of what we do, to be honest. Yeah, that really should be the central focus. It's not just, can I get them to achieve a different voicing pattern, but will they make that their habit now? Like, will they be able to transfer it over? And they'll only do that if it feels comfortable, if it sounds natural, and if it works for their needs. We need to, you know, in thinking about myths or, um, you know, yeah, myths in in the field, I think we need to perhaps question whether some of our recommendations set up some of our professional voice users uh, up for problems because of asking them to uh, observe lots of voice rest, for instance. You know, when an athlete is um, competing, there's a very specific protocol for preparing for competition. And even when they're not competing uh, on off-season, there is some level of uh, training and physical fitness maintenance. And, you know, I'm thinking about the musical theater performer who's a dancer-singer or a singer-dancer. And if they go from a high um, dance-focused show uh, to then a a Broadway show that's a a play, and then their next show after that is also uh, a very demanding show with with high-energy choreography, from not conditioning their body aerobically, are they setting themselves up for more of a struggle when they have to sing and dance? Or our teachers. What about our teachers who take the summer, who get the summer off and um, their their vocal load goes way down? Now, some of that's good because the vocal fold is, um, you know, has lamina propria, has epithelial tissue that is susceptible to injury. But what about the muscular layer? 
is there any deconditioning that happens from a change in use of change in the mechanical load placed on the the thyroarytenoid muscle, the lateral cricoarytenoid, the interarytenoid muscle, the cricothyroid muscle? You know, do we then set them up to to actually, yeah, fatigue, experience vocal fatigue uh, at the beginning of the year, develop you know compensatory strategies that are not helpful to um, reducing or minimizing vocal fold injury, and then they run into problems mid mid semester because they were deconditioned and didn't recondition before uh, starting this the academic year. So I think we have to think about our recommendations and how does that impact uh, all of the layers of the vocal fold tissue and the entire system that we're dealing with, not just the larynx and and not just. Uh, phonotrauma, but thinking about well, the tissue health is a big is a big uh, piece of whether or not the vocal fold tissue can handle biomechanical forces that result in phonotrauma. It's not that biomechanical forces um, alone, uh, without any more specific information, are problematic. I mean, we all have biomechanical forces every time we voice but we're not all developing voice problems. And so it's the amount of biomechanical forces in relation to the tissue to withstand those forces. And healthier tissue can withstand the forces better. So we have to think a little more granularly, if you will, uh, about this mechanism. And so in thinking about how people can prepare to be voice therapists, really understanding the anatomy and physiology. It's an intricate system, a lot of pieces uh, uh, to think about. And what's really challenging is we can, for many of our listeners, they, they're probably familiar with motor equivalence in articulation because they're used, they're used to thinking about allophonic variations of, for instance, a T. Well, we could think about the larynx as an articulator, right? It does articulate, it comes, it approximates, and we make an H sound uh, when air creates turbulent airflow as it traverses the, the approximated vocal folds, but they don't vibrate, and so we get an H. Or we have a glottal stop, which is in some languages. And so the, the, the larynx articulates, and then you impose on that, constantly uh, changing the acoustic pressures of the vocal tract, and the larynx is going to have to do all of these little micro adjustments, all of these allophonic variations of how the vocal folds are configured and, and how the, lar the laryngeal configuration is. So you, you, thinking very specifically in how the, the, the mechanism works uh, is so important. So foundational knowledge is, is huge huge and having a good understanding because there's so many ways that a client or patient can create a certain sound and we're just trying to get them there in a way that's efficient and healthy but it might actually be very similar a very similar sound uh or have a, a a similar resemblance in terms of the spectrum but it's created a different way because we have degrees of freedom in our system and, and we can use we can use it in so many ways to create the same output, acoustic output. And understanding that physiology is critical to, uh, to being able to affect change in our patients' voices. Yes, it is. And then being able to describe that 
without overwhelming your patient with technical jargon um, is another skill, <laughs> I feel. That's exactly. That's like the nine, the, the other 95% that I'm talking about, right? Is how do we communicate with our patients so that they're on board? So they have buy-in, they have motivation, so that they understand what they're doing. You know, uh, Leah Halu talks about metatherapy. Um, yeah, having these dialogues, these discussions. You know, in in some ways, I, I disagree with uh, Leah. I do think that lip trills are semi-occluded vocal tract postures and do have some inherent benefit. Uh, but what the problem is when we talk about them as playful or fun or silly, then we actually minimize their inherent benefit. There is an inherent benefit to doing a semi-occluded vocal tract posture for somebody who has a hyperfunctional voice disorder and phonotrauma. But doing it alone doesn't lead to doing it in conversation. And I think that's Leia's point. But what is more important is why are we doing what we're doing? We all want to know the rationale of, of what we do in our lives. If we go to the PT, if we go to the athletic trainer, if we go to the singing teacher, if we go to the, or even just a, even in school, why do I have to do this homework? How will this help me? Why do I have to learn math? Why do I have to learn science? You know, we're all wanting to know why we're doing what we're doing because time is limited and our patients have limited time and they want to get on with their lives. And so it's, it's transferring to conversation that, that is that hard piece. And for some people, it can take a more graduated process where you have to start with lip trills to, to find the target. And if they know why they're doing what they're doing and it's helping them, meaning it, as I go back to what I think is, is success, it, it is a, feels comfortable or it sounds more natural or it's more functional, then they're going to do it at home. If they, if they um, are committed to the process, right? And then that's another conversation. And so, you know, we think about these dialogues as, as creating a structure, creating a, a, a framework, um, an understanding of what we are doing in voice therapy. All right. So, um... In one of the articles that you sent me, the author outlined uh, like how to go about voice therapy. And what I really liked was her distinction between indirect and direct therapy and the pieces under that. And so I feel like you were just talking a lot about indirect therapy, like what we would do with them, the education on the systems that we need to communicate to them so they understand how they're producing voice. Bringing awareness to that helps them understand a lot of the activities that we will do with them, the therapeutic probes and stimulability testing that we'll do. Um, and then she went on to direct therapy. And that is the part where we start having them experiment with their voice or try out different styles. So. Are you ready to transition into that area and maybe talk a little bit more about direct therapy approaches? Absolutely. Um, so direct therapy is when we uh, work on voice production directly, when we're having the, the patient work on coordinating uh, the subsystems of voicing 
and producing a more efficient voice. And we can do that. We have so many tools and strategies available to us. And uh, that article references another article that I love, which is by Jared Van Stan, Dr. Van Stan. Uh, and that's the taxonomy of voice therapy, where Jared uh, really you know, um, organizes our strategies and tools into um, categories based on their their approach. So you have glottal function approaches, you have respiratory approaches, you have musculoskeletal approaches, sensory, uh, you have auditory approaches, and, and then somatosensory approaches. And each of them has a place. So our, our auditory approaches and our sensory motor, I mean, our somatosensory approaches, those are to help heighten awareness, bring awareness to, to um, the current voice, to um, other possibilities with the voice. Because um, I find that if the client doesn't know what's possible, then they don't know where they're headed. And so uh, listening and, and, and hearing and feeling the difference in how voice is being produced helps clients know where they're headed. But then you have other approaches, for instance, respiratory approaches. Well, you know, without airflow, there is no voice. And so having a, a system that's well-coordinated where breathing is, is facilitating, it, it, it promotes uh, voice production and, and that allows the larynx to be a little bit more passive um, and not so involved uh, is, is tremendously helpful and uh, but we, we need to remember when we're working on breathing that our breathing is both reflexive and, auto, and uh, volitional. And so when we're working on, for instance, breathing alone and having people tune, tune in our, to quiet breathing, that's a more reflexive breathing pattern and helps to bring awareness. We also have to work on breathing within voice and speech activities. And, and I find that that area where we spend a lot of time on breathing alone um, for some people is important, but then for others, we can move a, a, along a little more quickly. And it's about coordinating the breathing, not so much as establishing, um, a different breathing pattern, uh, in isolation. So there's, there's respiratory approaches. Some people have respiratory, uh, weakness. And so you need to actually increase, uh, muscle activity. So extra expiratory muscle strength training, or increased range of motion, like Lee Silverman voice treatment, that that works on large respiratory excursions, uh, lung volume excursions, or Forte phonation resistance training exercises that uh, I'm a co-developer of with Dr. Edie Hapner. That's another exuberant approach to increase respiratory drive, because in as I was saying, with hypofunctional voice disorders, you have an underuse of the mechanism. So you want to ramp up physical activity of voice production. And now there's some exciting data uh, from uh, rat models through Dr. Aaron Johnson's work showing that we can, uh, that the system is plastic even in older, um, older animals like rats. And so our Older adults absolutely can work on their voice and improve their voice. And that's an area where we do make some neuromuscular adaptations and strengthen their voice. Um, and that's a different approach because you wouldn't want to use uh, a, a high respiratory drive approach uh, in some patients with uh, phonotrauma because sometimes that's the cause of the voice problem, that they have high subglottal pressures um, and too much adduction leading to high impact stress and, and phonotrauma. 
But in a system that's very underutilized, where there's a gap, where the vocal folds at mid at the mid-membranous vocal fold, the collisional forces are very low because the vocal folds aren't even colliding. There's a gap. The, in that case, high respiratory drive approaches are absolutely critical in improving glottal closure uh, during voicing. You've got increased airflow, which is going to lead to uh, you know, an increase in the Bernoulli effect, but then you also have uh, glottal uh, vocal tract adjustments. So if you're using like an open vocal tract, the opposite of a semi-occluded vocal tract, then you're going to get a different impact on how the vocal folds close. They're going to be more tightly adducted. And so those two things can really help a fun hypofunctional voice disorder like presbyphonia, which is the complete opposite approach of working with phonotraumatic lesions. Uh, and, and so in working with phonotraumatic lesions, you're going to target a lot of, of vocal function um, approaches. So, you know, decreasing vocal fold adduction, um, decreasing uh, laryngeal hyperfunction uh, to better uh, to better coordinate the subsystems and have a more efficient, more economical voice production. But even in somebody who's hyperfunctional, I work on loud voice production if that's a need of theirs. So, you know, leaving a teacher without a good teaching voice is not really going to be a successful uh, situation when they're back in the classroom. Uh, they're going to have to, depending on class size and classroom environment, really uh, overcome some adverse, you know, acoustic situations and, and have to be, use a loud voice. And that's where my uh, case study chapter in the speech language pathology casebook by Bransky, uh, Ryan Bransky, really come that framework comes into play. So there's Van Stan's framework, which is really helpful at enumerating all of our tools and strategies and sort of what categories they fall into. The the Haddon matrix and the Haddon countermeasures that I reference in the and describe in the case study is essentially the factors that that lead to a voice problem and and contextualizes uh, the voice problem those and those factors so that we can think about taking the taxonomy for voice therapy and knowing how to use those techniques. So what's what's causing the injury? What's causing the voice problem? Okay, it's hyperfunctional, it's phonotrauma. We're going to need techniques that are going to limit biomechanical stress, uh, uh, like impact stress. And so... Or maybe the voice problem is a result of, um, you know, something like a chemical exposure from refluxed contents from the stomach to the pharynx causing a muscle tension dysphonia. And in that case, yeah, you can target voice production, but you're also going to need to target the irritant, the, the, the exposure of refluxed contents before that person's going to relax their pharynx and, and, and relax their larynx. They're going to be on guard. Their body is reflexively doing something to protect aspir from aspiration and protect from this very caustic, irritating um, substance produced from our stomach to digest food. And, and so this, the Haddon matrix really identifies, you know, what are host factors? What are host behaviors? The person's behaviors contributing? What are the, what's causing the, the voice problem, the injury, the actual pathology uh, the change in either vocal fold tissue or respiratory behavior. 
Uh, and then what are the environmental factors, the physical environment, you know, is the teacher in a classroom that has a, a, a amplification system or are they in a large uh, auditorium uh, teaching gym class with lots of noise and, and uh, lots of echo? And, and what's the sociocultural environment? You know, we don't talk a lot about the laws that govern professional voice users, but there are very strong, uh, specific laws to hearing conservation, um, for construction workers and vibration dose when they're using, uh, you know, their tools, for instance, you know, heavy duty drills for, for cement, there's absolutely threshold for how long they're to be exposed. And we need to do a better job at looking all at all ways to prevent and, uh, mitigate, uh, injury in voice users. And that includes things like adjusting the physical environment, adjusting, uh, making, creating laws, you know, petitioning our, our, our congressmen and women uh, and congresspeople to, to pass laws to protect professional voice users like teachers. Uh, how much should a teacher use their voice um, on any given day, given what they have to do and the forces that their tissue has to withstand? These are also considerations that I think the Haddon Matrix and, and the Haddon countermeasures can really address and complement the Van Stan uh, taxonomy. Um, can I ask you about the Hayden Matrix? Um, where is that from speech pathology field or have we borrowed that structure and that system and applied it to what we need? Like, where did it originate from? That's an excellent question. So the Haddon matrix and the Haddon countermeasures came about uh, around the time of the development of the United States highway system. So Eisenhower, when he was uh, in uh, president and the highway system was being built, um, com you know, was funding, they, the government was funding research to think about how to ensure safety of drivers. And so Haddon was a main um, scientist in thinking about how injury occurs and how to prevent injury, in this case, car accidents, uh, and minimizing uh, morbidity and mortality from, from car accidents. And so what the, before the notion was that injuries were um, these stochastic random events that there was no um, there was no there were no factors uh, that were could be identified that systematically uh, contributed to that injury and Haddon uh, analyzed some some in very important data and found that there were actually some very consistent patterns and factors involved in the development of injury. And so it was through his research uh, that uh, the Haddon matrix was developed and the Haddon countermeasures were uh, described to comprehensively uh, limit and prevent uh, motor vehicle accidents. And so I took an injury prevention, injury and injury epidemiology class in my uh, PhD program and was introduced to it there and thought, well, this absolutely applies to singers and, and other professional voice users. And so it's, it's been a framework that I have uh, very much incorporated into my cl clinical thinking and decision-making. And I think 
it really became apparent to me how useful it was in that case that I described where with only one session, we were able to virtually get this uh, touring singer back to baseline. Uh, not over, not in my one session, but through our prevention plan that we put into place that was based on Haddon's countermeasures after doing an analysis using the Haddon matrix uh, for this particular person's risk yes. factors. I, I think that would be so helpful in allowing patients to see the contributing factors that have resulted in this voice condition that they're experiencing. Because the question I get so often is, I've always talked like that. They don't recognize the shift in how they're using their vocal mechanism or the three systems of voice production. They don't recognize any changes there and how they might be overcompensating or undercompensating and how that shifts it out of whack. And that like they, I think most people think that there would be like one event that would result in this. And so when they can't place that or they see it happening so slowly over time, they're unable to see all the different types of contributing factors. And if we slow down and kind of go through and do this matrix, then they can see. And then I think that that would allow them to not repeat that for the future. So. Absolutely. And I think um, the head and matrix not only is a great um, analysis to do to identify the risk factors, the, the, the contributing uh, factors, but also those protective factors, the things that the client's doing very successfully. I think we often focus on their deficits and forget to acknowledge and actually jump, use their protective factors as a jumping off point. Um, and we often tell people what not to do uh, and don't help them brainstorm about what they can do and how they can integrate voice, um, efficient voicing into their um, everyday lives. So um, the Hatton Matrix can look at, well, what are the, uh, where do, what do we want to target uh, and make it more of a personalized, slenderized program that really is tailored to this person, for this person. I think voice is different in that way. Voice absolutely is a unique experience for every person because it's so intimately intertwined with who we are and how we think about ourselves. And so creating a, a, a plan for a client to, in order for that to be successful, it absolutely has to be individualized. And that's where getting to know the client and what motivates the client and um, the client's abilities are so important because if you understand the client and the client really believes that you understand them, then the, the, the voice therapy is, is all going to fall in line because it's going to be driven by the client, driven by the client's needs, um, preferences, um, strengths and and we want to capitalize on all of that because ultimately we spend one hour with them once a week or once every two weeks for four to six sessions and they are spending a lot more time on their own having to uh, actually create the change we just stimulate uh, people to think about what they're doing 
and to discover new patterns, new behaviors, new provide them with options. You can't you can't force somebody to do to do anything, and so it you don't know what they're doing when they leave. Uh, but hopefully, you've worked together with the person to create a plan, a, a, a plan for for change that is practical, accomplishable, and and exciting for the person. Because I think. The, ultimately, that's what voice allows us to ha- to have is a fun, exciting, meaningful, rewarding life. I agree. It was well put. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're wrap wrapping up now. So I was wondering if you would like to answer six questions that have been carefully curated just for you. <laughs> Absolutely, I'd love that. Okay. All right. Here's number one. Um, who presented at the most recent CEU that you attended? I was just at Fall Voice Conference uh, in Dallas, Texas. So a lot of wonderful presentations were given uh, and a lot of tremendous information was provided. Uh, so it's always a great uh, conference uh, to attend in thinking about gaining exposure and experience in the field. Fall Voice Conference is uh, going to be in Redondo Beach, California next year. And I invite everybody to come uh, attend, network. There are vendors. You can learn about uh, different ways that we can help clients uh, through objective, you know, uh, assessments, uh, as well as there are resources, you know, books and DVDs and CDs that people can purchase uh, to build their library. And, and you can bounce ideas off of people. So it's not just to let people know that you're, you're available in your area and that you provide services, but also, yeah, use it as a learning experience to, to ask some of those people who you read uh, their stuff and, and ask them about difficult cases or challenges that you've had or, or um, whatever it may be that could help you move forward in, in becoming the best clinician for the client. Um, and I'm I'm part of the scientific committee, so everybody uh, is welcome to submit a presentation, poster, and podium for next year. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I'll be sure to um, put a link in the show notes to send people um, to that link. All right, Aaron, where do you keep your ASHA Leader magazine? I, I usually keep it in my office. Um, but for some reason, and now, but since I'm now, uh, in my own independent group, I've noticed I haven't received a leader in a couple of, uh, yeah, it's been a couple of months. So, and I, even though I thought I changed my information on the ASHA website, I think I need to go check and make sure that was changed. But, uh, my colleague, she brought over the ASHA leader the other day. So I know there's a big article on cough, uh, which is exciting. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to have to open mine. I haven't gotten a chance to sit down and read it yet, but I have mine somewhere near the kitchen table, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, What is the most annoying sound a human can make? So I was thinking about this question when uh, you shared them with me. And I actually have to think for me, total silence. Oh, 
somebody How who, you know, not total silence in a comfortable way, but when it's being, when you're being ignored. Ah, ooh, yes. But that's not a sound. That's the absence of sound. Well, maybe that's just the most annoying thing is the absence of sound, like intentional absence of sound. Because voice is so beautiful and, 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 and communication is so rewarding. It's like, if you don't want to talk to me, that's really, you know, hurtful. So um, I think silence. Wow, that's so deep. I was not expecting that. You took it to a whole new level. Thanks for making my silly question like really thoughtful. <laughs> All right. Um, when did you present at ASHA? The last time I personally presented uh, was 2015. Uh, I believe that was in Orlando. No, well, if it was 2015, that one was in Denver because I attended that. You're right. So, yes, it was Denver. And I was presenting uh, some aspects of my dissertation work, looking at uh, the trade off between breathing for life and breathing for voice when you uh, induce level uh, high when you induce conditions of high respiratory drive. So I had people get on a treadmill and walk at different intensities and then had them do uh, a specific voice task at, in two different ways, one with a comfortable loudness and one at a uh, high intensity, vocal intensity. And we found that it that people can absolutely uh, overcome the the, desi- the respiratory need to breathe, the respiratory system's need to breathe for some time when they're, even when they're exercising by um, even when they're vocalizing, even when they're exercising. So a lot more flexibility in the system than I think uh, has been previously talked about. Mm, Which makes sense as we um, think about musical have... theater performers. Uh, there you go. Um, do you have any plans to present at ASHA um, in Orlando this year in 2019 or any future ASHA? Not this year, but in 2020, I'm planning to present. I have a couple of... Um, thoughts about presentations, one on some international work that I did in Ghana, uh, Africa uh, last year, and also some some uh, work I've been doing on voice and uh, cannabis inhalation. So what, what uh, impact does that have on voice and what do we need to know so that we can uh, advise our clients in, in an evidence-based way? Wow, that's excellent. That's awesome. I I feel like that's very functional, like directly translatable level of research to clinical practice. So like whenever I hear about those things, I get really excited. <laughs> well, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. It's legal on recreation for recreational consumption along the whole West Coast from California up to Canada. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a reality. And so I got to I have to rise to the occasion and meet my clients where they're at. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, how many myths associated with voice slash voice therapy are you acquainted with? I think the myth that I hope to spend a second here talking about is sort of what I discussed at the very beginning that um, that we can apply approaches for, for hyperfunctional voice disorders to hypofunctional voice disorders. Um, 
in the 90s and in and, and the 2000s as our technology improved and we learned more about how phonotraumatic voice problems uh, arise, I think we've become a little myopic in thinking about voice disorders uh, and only uh, giving, I think we our, 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 our involvement in understanding phonotraumatic voice disorders has somewhat kept us from thinking about hypofunctional voice disorders. And so I just want to encourage people to think about these two, um, you know, ends of the, the continuum and how what we do for one might not be beneficial for the other and vice versa. So, yeah, that's a myth I would like to, 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 for people to think about. Excellent. All right. Now, our final question, why would an SLP want to specialize in voice therapy? There are so many reasons that an SLP might want to specialize in voice therapy. Um, I think many of the people who get involved in, in that area were former professional voice users. So I think there's a rapport that people have built with their voice that lends itself to going into voice as a specialty. And, and that's an important step is, is building a rapport with your voice. People who are new at this, the best thing they can do is, is explore their own voice, play with it, create tension in different areas, um, try different voice qualities, try explore the, the pitch range and loudness range, and, and use your instrument in a variety of ways so you can have a better understanding of what the physiology is of who of the clients who are coming into your office. So yeah, having their 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 passion shift a little bit, but still stay within being a, a voice person. But also because of voice being such a, 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 and communication work in general, such focused on, on people and their lives. I think if you really enjoy working with people and, and the, the psychosocial circumstances of people and you like counseling, you know, I think voice has a big counseling piece that sometimes we shy away from, uh, but I think is actually some of the most important stuff we do uh, because it helps motivate and build confidence in people in adapting the changes that we're recommending. Uh, so, so really being a people person, really caring about people, really wanting to connect with people. Um, you know, I code switch a lot in, in therapy sessions to meet the client where they're at with their own language and words. And you, we talked about how do we, you know, break down some of these difficult concepts and make them palatable. Uh, use the people, the person's language, but you just use that language in, in an accurate statement and help them understand. Because if, if you're using their language, it's going to... Uh, be it that that concept will work within their understanding of the world and um so viewing people as wonderful to work with and exciting and challenging at the same time uh that hopefully really fulfills a piece of who you are excellent well aaron this has just been like so wonderful you just have a wonderful way of sharing all this incredible knowledge in your head um i'm so excited to get to um share this podcast with everyone else now so that they can get more excited about voice therapy because uh 
sometimes I get the sense in um, other SLPs that they, they don't know a whole lot about it. And so they will kind of shy away from it. Um, so maybe by listening to this, people will get more comfortable with voice therapy and understand that it's really doable and something interesting to get into. I think if you um, work with swallowing or you work with, um, you know, articulation, speech sound disorders, you already are thinking like a voice therapist. You're already thinking physiologically. You're already thinking, considering things like motor equivalents and, and how things are coordinated and muscles and, and all of that pressure, air pressures and airflow. So I think it's not too, um, uh, you know, big of a leap to go from having some, uh, interest in voice to actually doing it if you if you work in some of those areas that are motor behaviors so i i encourage everyone to get involved it's fun stuff and it's uh powerful stuff it is it's great i've really enjoyed learning and growing more in my own practice with voice therapy and um i'm i feel like such amazing feelings of success when my patient's eyes light up and they're like oh i get it i understand and then they do it. They do. And I'm like, if they get it. They do. <gasps> Nobody yeah. would have discomfort or people commenting that uh, people commenting they don't want to be around them because they sound sick or uh, it's very isolating. Voice disorders are very isolating. And so it is so rewarding when you see that aha moment in your patient. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Take care. Aaron is a treasure and I can't wait to have him back on the podcast to share his enthusiasm and knowledge with us some more. Aaron has provided some super helpful articles for you to check out in the show notes on speechuncensored.com. Ginger Jones is my guest next week and we're serving up realness on self-care, avoiding burnout and achieving your professional goals. I feel like a broken record because I say this about every episode, but it's so good, y'all. It's so good. You're going to love listening in to this talk that we had. I'd love for you to join me on Monday nights for the live CEU events. You'll get bonus content that doesn't air on the podcast and have the opportunity to ask my guests questions at the end. You can join speechtherapypd.com for $79 for a year with my code SUP and join us. I want to thank my listeners in Lima, Peru, Hamburg, New York, and Madison, Wisconsin. I so very much appreciate you spending some time with me on this podcast. <laughs> I want you all to go out there and continue to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. Thanks for listening.